Hello, hello, welcome to the Exchange Podcast. My name is Sam Amkokeli. This is a special edition of Politics Wednesday in which we unpack the latest from Glasgow and COP26, what it all means for South Africa, energy policy, and the jobs. We are joined by leading commentators Peter Atat Montalto and Nick Headley. Later on in the podcast, Tando Lukuko joins us. He is the chair of the SAE Climate Action Network. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Peter. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Could you give us your take on COP26 so far uh, and how that affects uh, South Africa and really the implications? There's a lot of uh, excitement in the media, or lack of excitement in some quarters about the so-called South African deal. What's your take on COP26 so far and how it affects South Africa? Hi, Sam. Well, there's the broader official negotiations, of course, which are the point of COP26, um, the 8.5 billion political declaration for South Africa is a separate side issue. Um, but the bigger negotiations certainly have a lot of implications for South Africa, uh, particularly in terms of how they discuss financing flows, uh, how they marshal funds more broadly, um, how they try and socialize the concept of a just energy transition at uh, international level. Uh, that so far not been successful. Um, language around that hasn't yet made it into uh, draft texts. Um, and how South Africa can use whatever global momentum comes out of this, uh, meet these meetings back home uh, in terms of uh, socializing the uh, broader and sort of complex issues uh, around uh, coal power station decommissioning, for instance, uh, around disclosure regimes that banks and asset managers have to do, uh, around the sort of labor and social issues uh, that come into this uh, as well. So the bigger global sort of negotiations do have a lot of relevance for South Africa still, but clearly the eight and a half billion uh, political declaration is the centerpiece for South Africa. And it's been very interesting here in Glasgow, uh, being accosted by a lot of people. Uh, you know, I'm here you know, uh, sort of on the South African uh, business delegation ticket with you know, decked out in South African um, you know, flags and stuff myself uh, and you know, getting accosted by people who want to talk about this, uh, you know, who see South Africa as an exciting example, potentially, uh, of how you can bring in particularly the social and labor issues. Uh, and so, yes, a lot of worrisome people on implementation, on uh, political risk, on things like that. But no, a lot of warmth and uh, interest, certainly, in the South African case here in, in Glasgow. Okay, thanks for that. So uh, you say you had the South African flag around uh, your neck. Does it sound like there's WEF uh, kind of uh, uh, events? Yeah, so South African has a South Africa has a pavilion here in uh, in Glasgow um, in the conference centre uh, where talks are hosted. Um, people will pass; they want to talk. Uh, you know, there are yes, they, those ubiquitous uh, South African scarves uh, certainly have have made an appearance. Um, but no, I mean, I think the, there's a, a set of talks which have garnered quite a lot of interest in. Uh, how uh, particularly uh, ESCOM fits into it, how the miners fit into 
the just change transition. And and so so yes, there there uh, are a broad set of events on the side of the official uh, conference where the actual or where the actual negotiations happen. Um, and and that's really where most delegates are sort of buzzing around and uh, and, and interacting with South Africa. Okay, uh, coming to you, Nick. What's your take on the event uh, so far, and what are your big uh, ticket issues, uh, as far as you can tell? Um, so I think it was always going to be quite a tough one. It's it's tough to get 195 countries to agree on anything. Um, I think coming into COP, climate finance for developing countries was probably going to be the biggest issue, and not enough progress or not much progress has been actually made there um the draft text is is out now of what's sort of going to be the final text out of cop um and it still doesn't address the finance issue enough so just for background in 2015 rich countries pledged to mobilize 100 billion dollars a year for developing countries to help them shift to renewable energy and also to prepare themselves for a changing climate. Um, so that covers things like flood and drought defense systems. Um, rich countries are responsible for the bulk of climate change. So they have a kind of moral responsibility to, to help the developing world catch up and prepare, um, which obviously made the South Africa deal quite important. It's, um, it's, it's, I guess hope that South Africa will be an example to the rest of the developing world of how climate finance can help with a just transition. Um, but there's a lot more still to be ironed out, obviously, in terms of the makeup of the $8.5 billion and how exactly it's gonna be used. Um, some big things that, that have happened. One thing that's very relevant to South Africa is Yesterday, there was an announcement by 33 countries, as well as car manufacturers, car manufacturers to phase out petrol and diesel cars, basically through the 2030s. Um, so European countries led that pledge, as well as India, some African countries, including Kenya, Morocco, Ghana and Rwanda also joined. Um, and then big automakers like GM, Ford, Mercedes, Volvo, Jaguar, Land Rover, all, all said pledge to phase out petrol and diesel cars, um, which is, they cover a quarter of global sales. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, it's a big deal for South Africa as well as a, as a car manufacturing country. Most of our exports go to Europe and that country is now gradually sorry, gradually migrating away from petrol and diesel cars. So basically we'll need to get our act together quite quickly if we want to maintain our exports. Um, obviously there's, there's been a lot of pressure on the big country, the big polluters like the US and China who have not signed up to all pledges. Um, but when it, I think when it seemed like things were sort of stalling at COP, um, China and the US agreed, I think it was this morning in an, an announcement early this morning to jointly tackle climate change. And obviously in the context of the fights over the past few years, that's pretty significant. Um, in that pledge, which doesn't give too much concrete, but China agrees to reduce methane emissions and protect its forests. 
Um, and both countries have also kind of hinted that they'll set more ambitious decarbonization targets. Um, obviously, that's a big deal, being the two biggest polluters in the world. So, Peter, if we break down, just to explain a bit on this uh, 8.5 billion uh, US uh, deal, how do we break it down? Uh, it is a credit line, uh, isn't it? Can you help us have a, a better view of uh, what it is? It's not a donation, as to help uh, somebody and everybody understand it. So I think the key thing to start with is this is not a uh, lending or a, a, an actual money deal yet. This is a political declaration. Um, it uh, just requires the nod from sort of all sides to sort of make this kind of agreement. It doesn't require ratification by anyone or budgeting, uh, which is now a question that's coming up, for instance, in the US Congress about how they end up paying for this money. Um, so we are at a very early stage, but what it shows clearly is intent, is interest in the South African example and making the South African uh, transition an important testbed, uh, that, uh, a successful testbed that other countries uh, can, uh, can emulate. Uh, and there is a certain amount of woolliness in the language which cannot ultimately survive in, in final lending agreements on things like what has to happen around the pace of decommissioning of ESCOM's power stations, um, if ESCOM can actually do its own renewables build using this money. Um, but what we know broadly is that you know, there will be some grant financing uh, in this. That's money that South Africa doesn't have to pay back. Uh, most of that will go to sort of project enablement, project planning, uh, project scoping, particularly on the electric vehicle and hydrogen side. Um, but that's probably going to be a tiny slither of the overall package. The vast bulk of this is going to be concessional lending um, to ESCOM um, to support its just energy transition plans, um, it, which means the decommissioning of power stations, the social and labor plans that go around that, transmission grid strengthening that has to happen. That's going to take up most of the money. Uh, I think it's unlikely that this uh, um, uh, concessional finance goes into the electric vehicle side, given it's very private sector, totally private sector dominated, or indeed into the hydrogen side, which the private sector can also uh, finance. So that's a big topic that's going to be coming up between the government uh, and these foreign lenders. But no, the next stage now is the crucial stage as we start to pin this down, as interest rates are agreed, for instance, generally, globally, concessional lending happens at sort of, you know, uh, roughly where sort of US commercial LIBOR rates are, which is a little about one and a half percent or so, uh, which clearly is well below, uh, you know, where government bonds are at uh, nine, ten percent. Um, but we have to remember this money would come in hard currency, not in RAND. Uh, there are costs of, of hedging the exchange rate risk, etc., which do make it a bit more expensive than that. But all this stuff is now to be uh, ironed out at the next day. So it's not too uh, but little what's happened, I mean, this is a major thing. It's a rare thing for South Africa, you know, to, to be there making such big announcements like this and to be sort of uh, fettered by the global community. And so we should definitely recognize that. But no, the hard work uh, really begins now. Okay, thanks for that. So, Nick, if we could create maybe two boxes here where we put things in, what are the issues that uh, we could put uh, on the, the upside box? And uh, you've mentioned... Uh, the issue of uh, doing away with petrol and diesel cars. And it's a great thing, I would imagine, for uh, South, African, South African economy and uh, especially for cities uh, in the Eastern Cape, for example, East London, uh, uh, your uh, Port Elizabeth, uh, producing uh, big volumes of uh, export meant, uh, cars meant for the export market. Uh, 
But let's look at the other issues about the trust uh, transition and the South African deal itself. So what are the positives uh, that we can say we can find here? And I'm quite keen after that to hear from you what you see as the negatives or the, the complexities around the just transition. Um, yeah, it's it's highly club complex and it's still almost uh, just an idea that hasn't really been been implemented yet. So no one really knows how it's going to play out. Um, it's obviously very important that the donor countries, if you can call them that, um, are putting a lot of emphasis on the need for a just transition that protects workers. Um, there have been a lot of proposals on the table from the likes of Meridian Economics in Cape Town um, on how a just transition could look and how we can direct some of the funding or savings from the concessional loans to, to go towards setting up things like manufacturing facilities in the coal belt of Mpumalanga. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot that still needs to be worked out. Um, Kasatu, interestingly, has has come on board and sort of welcomed the $8.5 billion dollar deal. And um and it's quite interesting how Kasatu is already thinking quite progressively about this. So for instance, in, in a lot of their wage negotiations negotiations now they are putting in the need for companies to retrain their workers for for the just transition uh no one knows yet how it's going to look and obviously in pumalanga is the focus area as the coal belt of the country um i think something that's quite important the sort of flagship project is going to be what escom does at its kendall power station next year so Kendall is the first of the big power stations that's going to be decommissioned. That'll be next year. Um, as they decommission it, the plan there is to set up a, a manufacturing facility to make microgrids that will be used to take electricity to the last 13% of South Africa that does not have it. Um, there will also be an agri-PV solution, which is basically growing crops under solar panels. And ESCOM's hoping that this could be a, a sort of template going forward of what to do at power stations as, as they decommission them. Um, so there'll be a lot of focus, I think, on Kendall and, and how that all works out and whether they are able to absorb a high number of the workers that were in the coal, in the coal sector. Um, but yeah, it's, it's early stages still. There's a lot to work out how, how workers in the coal belt are basically going to be protected. Um, studies do show that the shift to renewables will likely be job creating, net job creating. In other words, will create more jobs than are lost in, in the coal sector. And there are around 90,000 jobs in the coal sector. Um, some jobs put the shift to renewables at creating 100, sorry, some studies say there'll be about 155,000 jobs created by the shift to renewables, but Obviously, the, the important part is focusing on softening the blow for the 90,000 in coal. But again, it's going to be a slow transition. It's not going to be shutting coal overnight. So there's, there's time. Okay, thank you, Nick. So, Peter, you in Glasgow and you follow the South African political economy and its intricacies quite uh, closely. What's your reading of the mood of the politicians 
the responsible ministries and the people who influence uh, things in South Africa. What do you read out of their little statements, uh, tone, uh, posture so far? So this is really a fascinating, uh, I think, key to the next steps on on the deal, on the just change transition in, in general. So many people now are looking to government for a nod on certain issues, um, on the role of gas in the transition, um, on the ability to socialize some of these issues, particularly things like the Presidential Climate uh, Commission, um, uh, and for sort of clarity on things like what the, uh, the eight and a half billion deal uh, really is. And we're getting a lot of confusing messages um basically and you know some of the comments from minister mantash this week came out just uh during some panels actually where the uh the sort of south african um just tradition was being discussed there was a very odd uh, juxtaposition as a result um of, of sort of the minister's comments versus what was being discussed uh here in glasgow um and and you know i think there there is a, a degree of understanding i think people have that vested interests in the broader sense of the term, uh, have to be managed, obviously have to be transitioned, um, have to be uh, taken into account. The problem is, and I think the frustration that a lot of uh, investors and probably Labour and others even as well who are now on board have, is, is that it doesn't seem optimal to get the outcomes in the smoothest way possible, to get the amount of clarity required to ensure that we're protecting labour outcomes, social outcomes, etc. For, for instance, this continual repetition of the fact that we should be financing new coal power stations, that simply is not going to happen. The Chinese are not going to do it. There is not some magic pot of money out there. And so, you know, we can sort of go down these paths where, for instance, at the start of next year, the IPP office may well try and get financing uh, and deals for a new coal power station. And one can kind of argue that this is necessary in the political economy and things. But actually, I think there's an increasing realization this is not optimal. Uh, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of precious capacity. Uh, it's scaring funders. Uh, so I've been asked a lot in Glasgow about about these sorts of utterances on on coal, and it's also anti-evidence. And I think this is what's frustrating people the most. Uh, you know, there's been a huge body of work done by people like the CSIR and others now on the jobs benefits of renewables, uh, on how you can build a, res- a robust uh, energy system that gets over some of the intermittency issues uh, around uh, around renewables. And I think that's What's clouded the debate more is that the fact it is is quite clearly sort of anti-evidence. Um, so I think we need to be very careful. I think I think you know many people in in the presidency and elsewhere are, are well aware of the risks of, of these comments being made, um, but we haven't yet seen you know, the minister shut down. Uh, but we will get to a stage next year, I think, uh, as the detailed negotiations start on the eight and a half billion, where potentially there could be some damage caused if we see you know further further repetition of these sorts of things. Okay, thanks. So where to from now, Nick, uh, moving from uh, COP26, and what do you expect uh, will uh, happen uh, to realize perhaps uh, this deal or there will be some uh, resistance, as Peter alludes to the confusion that comes from key players, including uh, Minister Mantashe. What do you think will happen in the next couple of weeks? Uh, it's an interesting one. I think um, initially it was the deal was broadly sort of welcomed. Obviously, there's always going to be skepticism in South Africa when foreign governments try to do anything with us. Um, 
but I think it was generally positively received in the beginning and after the minister's comments a couple of days ago, sentiment does seem to have changed a lot. So I do think there's going to be a bit of an internal fight in South Africa about this, but I mean, the deal, it, it will go ahead and it's now coming down to actual negotiations to, to put a, a formal deal together and to work out where the funding is going. Um, I agree completely with Peter. It, it does not help our cause that there's talk again of new coal a new coal is extremely unlikely. South African banks aren't going to fund it. Um, foreign banks almost definitely aren't. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a non-starter conversation, to be quite honest. Um, I think now the debate needs to shift on mechanisms to, to ensure a just transition. So mechanisms to protect workers. And I think a lot of almost education on the need for a just transition is needed to make that a healthy debate. Okay, so Peter, is Minister Mantashe and his department, are they perhaps under pressure now uh, to update uh, their policy blueprints, including uh, the resource plan, IRP 2019 is the latest uh, we have. How do they relate as a department to uh, the, the influences coming from outside uh, of uh, South Africa? How do they respond? Uh, to, to this deal and the global movement? So there are a, cu- a couple of issues around what next for the for the department. I mean, we've obviously had the big major step foisted on them was the liberalization of the licensing regime for uh, uh, sub-100 megawatt projects only requiring registration. That was obviously a key operation in Lella reform. Um, but the, the problem now is a lot of these next steps really are solely under their uh, their control, such as around IRP. And so some of the issues with IRP is firstly timelines. I mean, the last time around, uh, depending on when you mark the start date, uh, you know, it took sort of three years. This was lodged in Nedlac for 18 months, um, going round and round in circles where unions had remarkably specific and weird uh, sort of views on nuclear power and things they were trying to shoehorn in. Um, and, you know, we did very big step change in process around IRP and this needs to be run more by someone like the CSIR on behalf of, um, in terms of the modelling on behalf of the department, uh, but also a rethink of what IRP is. So uh, in the last round of IRP, we had ESCOM decommissioning was an input, whereas actually now it should be an output. Uh, and the whole point of the new IRP is it should be about a carbon budget and a carbon envelope that is aligned but all the same as the national defined contributions uh, that uh, South Africa has lodged here in, in Glasgow at these COP26 meetings. Uh, and then what happens is most likely, as particularly as uh, renewables costs uh, falling, um, uh, as you get new battery storage, et cetera, that you'll actually see a naturally a slightly faster pace of decommissioning uh, coming out. And, and so we need to uh, rethink of what IRP is. Now, the problem for this is each of these, these, these sorts of outputs and this sort of technocratic nature of this right are, are hugely politically challenging. Um, particularly for the vested interests um, in a slightly narrow sense of that term that uh, the department uh, is interested in. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, the, the process on IRP change may well kick off at the start of next year, actually, but is uh, is going to take an awful long time and is probably going to be bogged down in delays as vested interests uh, are, being, are being managed. And there are a lot of other questions that the department isn't really answering first, such as the role of gas, and that's why we're all looking at the PCC now for an answer, 
uh, on that that sort of issue. Uh, and we have to include hydrogen as well in the new IRP. Uh, and again, we need uh, some more policy on on that front. So this is hugely complex areas, but it's quite. We, in fact, we do need this new IRP, but in particularly very politically challenging uh, undertaking at what is ultimately a, a technocratic exercise and trying to you know shoehorn together a te- the technocratic side and the political side. Okay, so Nick, when you watch then maybe the counter department, if you can call them that, uh, the ministry led by Minister Barbara Chrissy and the Environment uh, Department. What do you think will be the issues that they would be driving uh, from here? We've had a really lucid uh, input uh, from uh, Peter on the, the mining uh, ministry and the policies that drive it. What do you expect on the energies, uh, on the environment side and what will happen? Um, so Minister Creasy has a big push of hers has been the need to step up climate finance. Going back to the climate finance conversation, it has been something that her department has put on the table for quite a while now. Um, There is an agreement in the Paris Agreement to ramp up climate finance from that $100 billion a year to something new in 2025. Um, Minister Creasy has been pushing for it to be raised to $700 billion a year for developing countries, which is obviously a sevenfold increase. and this is despite the fact that rich countries have so far fallen well short of the $100 billion target. So that's going to be, I think, the next big contentious issue. Um, and there needs to obviously be a willingness to, to show that South Africa is willing to decarbonize faster if we are going to secure a large slice of the growing climate finance pie. Um, they'll also be concerned about things like um, loss and damages, which is something that sort of goes hand in hand with adaptation finance. Um, it's yeah, it's a it's very much a conflicting position that that Minister Creasy and Minister Mantashe have, um, and again, sending sending very mixed signals. Okay, thanks. So we're wrapping up, uh, gentlemen. Uh, Peter, you're putting short. I know you have to rush to the uh, midterm uh, budget. Uh, you're putting short anything we may have left out of this? So I think we're seeing a very classic sort of South African leap at this sort of money. And it's a, it, we have to remember what it is. This is ultimately enabling, right? $8.5 billion is not enough on its own to achieve anything. It's not enough to achieve the Just Saying Transition. Uh, we probably need that, you know, every couple of years, you know, for the next couple of decades to actually make the just transition work. The, the point now needs to be to have a serious engagement, particularly by Treasury and led by Treasury, um, you know, on the terms uh, and to ensure that this is possible and structured in the correct way. You should remember there are a lot of disagreements even amongst people providing the money. Um, but also we need to think about how you uh, leverage this. You know, uh, ultimately, the things that have to be done, like a very long-term process of decommissioning power stations and long-term process of investing in transmission, cannot be financed with little, uh, you know, drips of uh, of concessional off- offshore money from DFIs. It has to be financed in the markets, and that's really should be the end goal. It comes back to ESCOM unbundling, comes back to sorting the ESCOM legacy debt position. Um, but that's really where this money can help: is enabling an environment where you can ultimately do a sustainable, longer-term. Uh, financing of these sorts of things. And that, that's the goal we should have uh, our eyes on. Uh, and with that, a lot of capital market development that comes um, you know, with asset managers and others then willing to start financing some of these 
uh, other things like uh, like social plans, like uh, labor and reskilling and these kind of issues, which are going to be so important uh, for you know getting a just transition to stick, um, you know, politically and, and socially in South Africa, which is of course ultimately the goal. Okay, thank you, Nick. Your side, your parting shot. Um, I think it's been a, a somewhat disappointing COP. Um, quite a strange one in that there've been a lot of side agreements rather than a focus on the sort of main agreement. Uh, that's something that the UK seems to be driving quite heavily is these sort of side pledges. Um, it's you do get the sense though that momentum is shifting quite aggressively and. And even big polluters are now sort of coming to the table and and sort of and stepping up their pledges. Um, this has obviously been helped by substantial decreases in the costs of renewables. Um, I think one thing that has complicated the messaging though is the the energy crisis in Europe, which is often wrongly attributed to a failure of the transition. Um, but it's an interesting time and. And I think it again just highlights the risk of stranded assets. If, if South Africa does invest in new coal, oil, or gas projects, they're likely to become stranded, worthless assets in in the not too distant future. With with how aggressively momentum is shifting, so it's an interesting time. We, we still need to see the final text in the next couple of days out of COP26, but there's definitely momentum change, in my opinion. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, those issue of the stranded assets is probably the reason some politicians will want to hold on. Uh, conversely, they'll say South Africa is endowed with these massive coal reserves and these are foreign currency earners, and they will want to dig in even some more. But so uh, it's very interesting. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Nick. And now we welcome Tando Olikuko, who's joining us from uh, Glasgow. Tando is the chair of the SA Climate Action Network. Tando, welcome. Thanks for making time to talk to us about uh, COP26 and uh, all the latest from uh, Glasgow. Tando, welcome to the podcast. And could you kindly give us your impressions uh, so far on COP26 in so far as South Africa is concerned? Uh, thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, I can do that. Um, so I think it's been, been a fairly good uh, COP for, for SA. Uh, insofar as the objectives that we um, had heard from uh, during the stakeholder engagement that uh, the minister held a few weeks ago, uh, we seem to be on track. So, for instance, on on, on the mitigation component, we we the, the, what we wanted to be on the text is now there. Um, the similar for the adaptation. The, the the tricky part is the finance component, but that one is outside of any one country's individual power. Um, so, so, so there are some great elements. Of course, the the news last week of the 8.5 uh, for some is great news, including myself. For others, not so much. So, so uh, it's 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 not without its challenges. But I think uh, on the balance of it all, I think it's been a good cop to uh, so far. Okay, thank you. So, if we zone in on the 8.5 billion US for uh, South Africa, could you just expand on why you think it's a good uh, deal for South Africa? So we have to look at what it is that it represents first and foremost, right? Uh, as we know, um, I've heard uh, recently that uh, South Africa has been experiencing stage four. Um, now, 
what we're trying to do, of course, is to move away from our coal dependency and move towards uh, renewable energy and the just transition. Now, the challenge with the just transition is that very few uh, have done it, right? Uh, and so what, what needs to happen is for us to get uh, pilots in place. We need to test the theory that, that you know, many have, including ourselves to some extent. Now, what that 8.5 represents is the first step in being <clears throat> in a commitment from particularly the international community to try and support that specific objective. Now, there are some uh, caveats with it. We don't, I mean, you would have heard the utterances of the minister saying that um, it's an offer. It's not actually any kind of agreement. Uh, when, when it's an offer, it means we still have the choice to then either accept it or not. Um, and that will be then uh, discussed uh, when we get back home around the merits of that particular 8.5 and uh, and what it might mean for us. But on the, on the balance of it all, I think it's been a, I think it's a good thing. It, it shows that there is some interest to want to see South Africa progress beyond its coal dependency. Um, yeah, and, and, and away from the low shedding circumstances we find ourselves at the moment. Okay, thank you. How do you think the just transition could be managed and uh, delivered on to ensure that uh, people in communities like uh, communities across uh, Mpumalanga that are coal dense do not lose their livelihoods and uh, more jobs are created. How can we make sure that this is uh, implemented in a way that is productive and positive, more than just it being on paper that uh, renewables can create jobs? So this, this is in part the reason for why the, the, the President for Climate Commission exists, right? Is, is precisely to be able to answer that question. So one of the things that's needed is, is the framework, which will, uh, at least on paper first, um, put together the plan of what is needed, what are all the elements, what are the risks, because there are risks, of course, that come with this, and jobs is definitely um, one of those risks if it's not managed properly, including the life, excuse me, including livelihoods of those who are dependent on the coal value chain for, um, for their sustenance and for their uh, survival. Now, when we're moving to the just transition, it's not, contrary to popular belief, a subject that is for a few, right? It's a subject that is, um, as, as far as I believe, um, supposed to open itself up to as many people as possible um, who have an interest in the space and who are willing to engage on the space. So that those particular views and perspectives of those who are most impacted are considered in the decisions that have to take place. Now, we know that some people aren't always interested in wanting to participate in seemingly uh, bureaucratic processes or government-related um, um, uh, discussions or consultations, which is sometimes to their own detriment, right? Because then it means if you aren't going to be the room to come and share your perspectives on why a certain um, direction ought to be taken, factoring in your, um, your circumstance, then <laughs> to be fair, who and who is going to understand your context better than you and who would be able to articulate your context better than you. And if you're not going to be in the room, then that is a missed uh, point. So when it comes to the issue of communities, uh, the businesses, um, industries that may be affected by this, what the commission is looking to do is to set up roadshows where they create platforms for, for engagement and for dialogue with these affected parties. And it, there, there's an element of responsibility that we all have to take in this. 
to be able to participate in the creation of a new future for South Africa, because that's exactly what it is. If we don't, similarly with the democratic process, if we don't, we choose to not participate in that space, then we leave it to those who have always participated, who always think a particular way about um, certain parts of our communities. And then you can only expect what we would have gotten in the past if we continue to not want to participate in some of these processes. So the only way in which we can then ensure that the, the, the views and perspectives and concerns of communities, of industry, of people directly linked to those value chains is, is factored in, is by their active participation in seemingly dis difficult conversations uh, and consultations. Okay, so looking at the road ahead, what do you think will happen now in the next couple of weeks post uh, COP26 and South Africa dealing uh, with the implications of COP26? So usually what happens is you get back home, there's a bit of a debrief on how things went. Uh, and then it's, it's, it's one of the things that we always have to look at is how then to um, what it is that we've uh, agreed to, our positions that um, have been successful, um, how do we then implement them uh, in our South African context, right? So this means domestication. This means uh, how do you take, uh, for instance, uh, the, the conversation of what was discussed under 8.5 and bring it home. Um, one of the things that uh, I know that is going to be done is there will have to be meetings, rooms, uh, commissions, if you will, but whatever kind of formal process to discuss some of the details and how those details will affect us and how they'll be implemented and by whom. Um, so that we, again, we, we are then in a position to implement those programs, report on them in due course, and then share them again when we get back at COP. So, so, so that those are usually the, 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 the common steps that we take. And then to whatever extent, communicate as well with the broader society as to what has been achieved, what hasn't been achieved, why we didn't achieve it, uh, and then what the strategy is for moving forward. Okay, so in that period and the process, what do you think the key sticking points uh, will be when you look at environmental policy, but also energy policy? We are driven by uh, different uh, departments and they tend to have various uh, uh, stake, competing stakeholders uh, at, at something. So what do you think the key issues will be and the key sticking points? Look, um, okay, so, so we might need to go into a little bit of technical language then. But it, it would be a couple of issues. So, so of course, it's going to be the mitigation component, right? Um, that 1.5, because what that 1.5 uh, temperature goal means is that we aren't in a position to um, want to pollute to a point where it, we overshoot that particular trajectory. Now, for that to happen, it means um, through the presidency, through um, cabinet, they have to sit down and have serious discussions on how to plan to get um, to where we need to get to whilst being cognizant and sensitive to our um, constraints in terms of energy, in terms of uh, availability of um, uh, resources in terms of money specifically to be able to implement some of these things. So it's going to be that 1.5 temperature goal is going to be a serious one. The next one is going to be the, the uh, ambition goal, uh, sorry, adaptation goal which is uh, very directly linked to what communities can do. And specifically, um, you know, the, the, there's gonna be funds that need to be available for communities to be able to adapt to a changing environment in the near future. So 
that particularly uh, involves the role of local government more so than national because local government as you know is the closest one to is, is the closest one to community to, fr to frontline communities so so that's the second one then the third one is going to be the financial support where's the money going to come from for us to be, able to be able to implement some of the things that we need to implement now as you know COVID basically emptied out South Africa's pockets, right? Not only South Africa, but others as well, but specifically in South Africa, COVID pretty much emptied us out. So of the funds that have been allocated, for instance, for that 8.5, right? Not all of it, um, uh, for example, was, 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 was going to be given to ESCOM. There's a portion of it which is going to be given to other uh, activities, other departments linked and part and parcel of the entire agreement so that they could be implemented. Now, out of the conversation of whether or not uh, we want to take this agreement, where could these funds possibly go? What could they fund? And how could we get it there? And who else is willing to come on board to help provide additional funds so that we could continue to implement our projects? So those are the three primary goals that we had going into COP. Uh, coming out of COP, I suspect those would be the three remaining goals that we're choosing to want to implement. Not to say that others aren't important, but uh, we always have to prioritize, unfortunately. Um, so, so, so that's what I anticipate. Now, the, the, the difficulty between DFFE and uh, DMRE requires that at a very senior level, at pr pr primarily at a cabinet level, I don't know to what extent at ANC level, that there would need to be a discussion around how to balance the interest of the country vis-a-vis -vis the interest of the environment and society as relates to the energy provision in the country. It's not going to be a difficult conversation, but we have to be able to provide the energy, but we cannot continue to want to provide energy in the same way that we've done it in the past, uh, as if blindly to say it's not going to have an impact. You know, that can't be. Okay, thank you, Tando. Anything else that we might uh, have left out that you want to share with the public? Um, well, let me, let me just say as well that I think it's, you know, as contrary to, to what I think some sentiments are from, from uh, some spaces, right? The participation of ourselves as a country in a space like COP is absolutely crucial, right? Um, primarily because even though we might feel it, it is far removed from our, uh, our domestic circumstance, we are also, um, you know, signatories to some of the agreements. So just from a legal perspective only, we can't not participate because our lack of participation in such a space means that we don't have a voice again. It goes back to that conversation. So it also helps to have um, South Africans as far as possible and as far as they're willing to become abreast of uh, the spaces that these discussions are taking place so that they could be able to chime in, number one, but also number two, hold accountable then the political leader that they've put in place to be able to speak on their behalf. Now, unfortunately, like I said, some of these conversations are technical. There are spaces in which uh, one can get assistance to understand it, but the more layman can understand, or layperson rather, can understand the conversations going on here, what is being agreed to and what it means, the better that person is in, the better position that person is in to hold accountable than their leaders to, to make the right decision when the time counts the most. And I think um, definitely one of the things we need to try and do is open up our minds more so to to how we engage with these multilateral uh, spaces, how we engage with partners outside of the borders of our country, because we need them to be able to help us to get to where we need to, because we can't do it alone. That's just the fact of the matter. So, so that's all I wanted to say. Now. Okay, Tandra, thank you so much. Really appreciate your input and your insights and your time. No, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. 
thank you very much and uh, thank you for joining us on the exchange we look forward to interacting with you again in the future